And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgil Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today as we learn how to explain, defend the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And uh, we've got a great show in store for us to uh, start off the week here. We have Master Apologist Ken Litchfield coming on the other side of the break. We're going to talk about the Magisterium which is one of those $5 Latin words, which means the teaching authority of the church. And uh, so we're going to look into, uh, as Ken always does, you know, dives into scripture and history as to where this idea of a a teaching authority within the church came from. And uh, that's going to be a ton of fun. It's coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, as always, we're going to do what we always do here at the dojo is sharpen our critical thinking skills and add yet another early church father to our knowledge bank. And the finding of the fallacy for today is the argument from repetition fallacy. And our early church father for today is St. Gregory the Wonder Worker. St. Gregory the Wonder Worker, big, very influential early church father in a number of ways. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And uh, you know what? Uh, as always, it's just great to be back here. And I want to start off like I always do by welcoming all of you to the JoJo, begin with the live stream audience, and also with all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world, either through our handy dandy Virgin Most Powerful phone app or through our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. Welcome aboard, everybody. Hope everybody had a great weekend and you're all rested to get back into the dojo and do our workouts and learn how to explain and defend the faith, become defenders of the faith, and get uh, spiritually and intellectually ripped, so to speak. And uh, it's it's great to be with you. Been a busy weekend for me, um, doing lots of research for my apologetics channel, Apocrypha Apocalypse, found some very interesting things concerning Gregory the Great, which ironically was the subject of our broadcast last week, where we dove into life of Gregory the Great. Um, as you know, uh, for those who follow the issue of the Old Testament canon, which in my humble opinion, I think this is really the issue that uh, Protestantism just doesn't have a leg to stand on, and that is why they only accept the books of the Old Testament they do and reject some books that are found in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. And, of course, this is the so-called Apocrypha, or what Catholics and Orthodox call the Deuterocanon. And Gregory the Great is always added to that list. And I think it's more of an embarrassment factor um, because uh, Gregory makes, like, one qualified statement when he uses First Maccabees. And uh, I think, you know, evidentially it means nothing. You know, it really doesn't tell us whether or not the Deuterocan is inspired or not. I think it's more of an embarrassment factor that a pope, especially as prestigious as Pope Gregory the Great, uh, would even make such a qualification. So I, I found some very interesting stuff from his work. 
I'm putting it all to a video. So if you haven't already, I want to give a little bit of a plug for my channel, Apocrypha Apocalypse. Just type in Gary Machuda on YouTube or Apocrypha Apocalypse on YouTube. And that's the channel, by the way, that William Albrecht and myself run. And he's been putting out some great videos as well. So lots of cool stuff happening with that. Also, uh, my new book, Revolt Against Reality, has been uh, it's hit the stands. It's uh, making its rounds, and I'm still doing interviews uh, promoting that book. If you want an in-depth discussion as to the deep causes of the insanity we live in today, this is my own take on how we got to where we are. And hopefully, once we understand that, we can maybe make a path back to sanity. So I highly encourage you, uh, Catholic Answers Press publishes it. It's available through shop.catholic.com. And I guess that closes my self-promotion phase of the program. Let's start a training, shall we, by looking at Finding the Fallacy. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the argument for a repetition. And I think everybody here is familiar with the Latin name for this fallacy. It is the Argumentum Ad Nauseum. And I think we're all familiar with ad nauseum arguments and ad nauseum discussions. The Latin term uh, for the argument and uh, discussions, uh, have can, it's basically when a discussion of a point has reached the, the point of nausea. In other words, that uh, it's just constant repetition of the same thing over and over again. And uh, so um, what, is, uh, what is the strength of this repetition? Well, if you keep repeating the same thing over and over, eventually in people's minds, it seems like a well-grounded fact because, after all, they've heard it a million times. Uh, I think it also is one of those fallacies that wears down the opponent by uh, atrophy. It just, by constantly bombarding the same error over and over or same fallacious uh, remarks over and over, uh, it's just you want to give up your will to resist. And I think that's the other uh, powerful part of this fallacy. Of course, children learn this early on, and uh, they seem to be the best champions of the argument ad nauseum fallacy. Just keep bombarding parents until they cave in. But, you know, it, it also occurs in apologetics, uh, probably not in as much of a confrontational form as uh, during a debate or discussion. Someone will just keep repeating the same point over and over even if the the point has been addressed and debunked, uh, it just keeps coming up in, in conversations. And uh, one thing, I think that's a red flag for the apologist that perhaps if someone is doing that, if you keep addressing the same point and they keep ignoring uh, your correction, I think that's a red flag that the person may not be either, he doesn't, they don't care about the point or they're not really interested in anything you have to say. So you could either uh, try a different point or just abandon it altogether and just uh, try to continue to foster a friendship and, of course, pray for the person because if they're not willing to listen, then you, you're just wasting your time banging your head against the wall. And that is our Finding the Fallacy for today, the argument from repetition. And uh, let's look at our early church father for today who is St. Gregory the Wonder Worker. Um, St. Gregory was born from wealthy pagan parents in Neo-Caesarea in the Pontus, about the year 213 AD. He was called Theodore. 
and took the name Gregory when he was baptized. Uh, together with his brother uh, Athenodor, uh, Gregory went to Caesarea in Palestine in 233 AD to live with his sister, whose husband was imperial governor of Palestine. Remaining there for five years, he attended Origen's lectures and was converted to the faith. A few years later, he was consecrated as the first bishop of his native city, Caesarea, and he died uh, there sometime between the years 270 and 275 AD, and legends have grown up around him accounting for his title Wonder Worker and the great... Uh, Cappadocian fathers, Saints Basil and, of course, Gregory Nazianzus and Gregory Nyssa, also ver venerated him as the founder of the church in Cappadocia and very influential in their lives. Unfortunately, uh, Gregory's writings are not particularly extensive, uh, but there is a fair corpus of his works that have survived the ages. And... Uh, although uh, many of them have not undergone any new or critical additions, says Jurgen's Faith at Early Fathers, which is a shame because with all the influence that uh, Gregory had on the great Cappadocian fathers, Basil, Gregnissa, Gregory of Nazianzus, um, unfortunately we don't have a lot of his writings, and he kind of marks a very important epoch in um, church history that's that kind of connects origin to the Cappadocian Fathers. And so it would be nice if we had more from them, but we really don't. One work we do have is called the Creed. And sometime in the years between 260 and 270 AD, Gregory had the occasion of composing a short creed, restricting it to the exposition of the Trinity. The text uh, of it in the original Greek was incorporated into the biography of Gregory uh, by St. Gregory of Nyssa, and it was to be found also in a large number of manuscripts apart from the biography, extant also in Greek, uh, excuse me, Syrian translation and uh, two independent translations in Latin, one of them from Rufinius. And uh, by the way, that's not a surprise because Rufinius, great admirer of origin, and so this disciple of origin certainly would have uh, caught his attention. And, I, yeah, let's read a little bit from the Creed. We probably won't be able to read the whole thing. But St. Gregory the Wonder Worker says this, One God, the Father, the living word, of subsistent wisdom and power, and of the eternal image, perfect begetter of the perfect, Father of the only begotten Son, one Lord, only of only, God of God, image and likeness of the Godhead, efficient word, wisdom comprehending the constitution of the universe and power shaping all creation, genuine son of the Father, invisible of invisible and incorruptible of incorruptible and immortal of immortal and eternal of eternal and one Holy Spirit having the substance from God and who is manifested to men that is through the Son, image of the Son, perfect of the perfect life and the cause of the living. And that's St. Gregory, the Wonder Worker from his creed. Coming up next, we'll be chatting with Master Apologist Ken Litchfield and we're going to be talking about the Magisterium. Stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. And we're going to dive into Scripture and all sorts of stuff, talking about the magisterium with our good friend, Master Apologist Ken Litchfield. Ken, of course, is a lifelong Catholic and member of Holy Family Parish in Memphis, Michigan. He serves as Grand Knight for the All Saints Memphis Knights of Columbus Council. And after reading the Left Behind books, he started studying the Catholic faith more deeply. Uh, he has answered questions on Catholic Answers Collins show. He serves as moderator and contributor to the Bible Christian Society Facebook page. Uh, she's also published articles for the Coming Home Network and Catholic 365. And in 2018, he published his first book called How Old Is Your Church? which is an organized collection of 25 short essays from his much larger library of short essays explaining and defending the faith. And Ken Litchfield, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Hi, Gary. Thanks for having me back. Really love being on your show. <laughs> yeah, hey, we always love having you on as well. Now, you live further north of me. Uh, did you get hit by the snowstorm last week? Um, <laughs> well, actually, the way the storm came through last week, us folks slightly to the north of you guys got less than you guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so so we got hit harder. Well, actually, yep. it wasn't too bad. But, um, of course, you know, uh, our, our uh, listeners uh, that are further south probably had some light rain or something. I'd much rather endure that than snow and ice. But, anyway, it's just part of the wonderful state of Michigan in which we live, um, I guess. Yep. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so um, so what have you been up to? You know, is things slowing down in winter for you? Um, let's see. Well, got plenty of work to do at my regular job, uh, mm -hmm. working on Tucker's and uh, 48 Packard and a 57 Chrysler. Uh, nice. Our council, my KFC council, going like gangbusters. You know, we had four different events in January and four more in February. Um we're just rolling along like a, uh, a freight train, I guess. <laughs> nice. And brought in a couple new guys uh, to help out with all the work. Yeah. And uh, and uh, as uh, our listeners probably are familiar with, too, that uh, you do a lot of online apologetics. So even though the weather might be bad outside, you're busy, too. Do you, are you still uh, conversing with a group of Catholics in Pakistan? Uh, yeah, still get together with the folks in Pakistan. Um, and actually, let's see. Well, like my information today for the Magisterium, uh, I originally put this together for an interview I did with William Hemsworth. Oh. And then the director of religious education at our church, uh, she said, my presenter for the Magisterium canceled on me can you do it <laughs> and i said i'm already prepared <laughs> hey there you go yeah talk about uh god's providence working in your life so uh okay well magisterium that's one of those strange words that catholics probably have heard before but maybe not really clear what exactly is a magisterium right so the magisterium is the teaching authority of the roman catholic church especially as given by bishops or the pope it is the official and authoritative teaching of the Catholic Church. And everybody has a magisterium. 
it might be the Pope, a Cardinal, a Bishop, a famous Protestant theologian, your local pastor, um, or some individual that guides you in the interpretation of the Bible and how it applies in your life. So everybody's got a Pope. Sometimes that Pope is an individual who reads the Bible for himself and decides what it means for himself. And of course, everybody else has the wrong interpretation after their own personal interpretation. Mm-hmm. And then here in America, you know, we Americans uh, pride ourselves on our independence. And a lot of people don't want to have to listen to somebody else, especially when it comes to religion and the interpretation of the Bible. People want to choose for themselves just like they choose which fast food restaurant they want to go to that day. But the question is, whose authority do you want to accept? Yours or the authority that Jesus left behind to carry on his mission? And Jesus didn't leave a Bible behind for his apostles and their successors to know what he taught. He left 11 men whom followed him around for about three years and learned the faith from him. And what they learned from Jesus is what we call the deposit of faith. And if you think about it, you know, we only have writings from about six apostles, and half of those writings in the New Testament come from the Apostle Paul, who didn't even follow Jesus around for three years. Hmm. And... So most of what Jesus passed on to the first Christians was passed on through the oral tradition, through the teaching of the apostles that knew Jesus. Some of that was written down in what we now call the New Testament. But there's only 27 books in the New Testament. And nowhere in the New Testament does it say that we should only go by Scripture alone. However, our Protestant brothers and sisters, you know, are very fond of pointing out 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says, all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then verse 17 says, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient and equipped for every good work. So first we need to point out to them that nowhere in these two verses does it say that we should go by scripture alone. Protestants will assert that scripture is their highest authority, but in my own small town, I have five Protestant churches. In the town to the south of me, Richmond, there are 10 Protestant churches. So which one of those has scripture as their highest authority, which therefore invalidates the other nine churches uh, or four churches in my town? That's always a big question. But if a Protestant points these two verses out to you, uh, back up just two verses in the Bible and read uh, 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, where it says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from your childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So the scriptures that Paul is referring to in 2 Timothy 3.16 
are the scriptures of Timothy's youth. And the scriptures of Timothy's youth are the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is a big plus for us Catholics because the Septuagint has the seven books that we have in our Old Testament that Protestants don't have anymore. So how do we know that Timothy used the Septuagint? Well, he had a Greek father, a Jewish mother, and he lived in a Greek city. We live in Michigan in the USA where we speak American. We don't read scriptures in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek or Latin. We read the scriptures in English. So Timothy would have been reading the scriptures in his local language, which was Greek, which would be the Septuagint. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and as you know, I mentioned the Apocrypha Apocalypse uh, channel. Exactly. Uh, yep. The Septuagint also includes those books that uh, aren't in Protestant Bibles. So. Yep. So when they quote you three sixteen. Say amen and back up two verses. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And then show them that, yep, that proves we have the better Old Testament than you. So, <laughs> speaking of the Old Testament, uh, this is how the Old Testament prepares us for the magisterium. In uh, the book of Genesis, we have the story of Abraham and how he leaves the land of Ur and... Uh, by faith, follows what God directs him to do. Um, one of the things that God directs Abraham to do in chapter 17 of Genesis is to circumcise himself and all the members of his tribe. And that comes into play much later on, uh, particularly in Acts chapter 15 of the New Testament. But Abraham had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, one of which was Joseph. And Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, uh, so they sold Joseph into slavery. And eventually, Joseph ended up in the land of Egypt, where he properly interpreted the dream of the Pharaoh there, and that they were going to have five, seven years of good harvest and then seven years of famine. And after those seven years of famine, or during the seven years of famine, uh, Joseph's family came to Egypt uh, to buy food, and then Joseph invited his whole family, his father and brothers, to move to Egypt. So that's how the Israelites ended up in Egypt. And if you ever watched the movie The Ten Commandments and you're wondering, you know, how did the Israelites end up as slaves in Egypt? Well, that's how they ended up there. And God gave Joseph the gift of infallibility to properly interpret the Pharaoh's dream and to save Israel, which prefigures Jesus' saving of Israel later on. And let's see. After that, we have uh, Moses' next uh, prefigurement of Jesus, because he comes along 400 years later, um, and he frees the Israelites from Egypt, and he writes down the first five books of Moses. So here we have a man who writes infallible 
books for the Old Testament through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So here's another prefigurement of Christ where Moses saves Israel and gives infallible teaching from God. And David is the third prefigurement of Christ in the Old Testament uh, because he again saves Israel and unites Israel under one king. And God promises David that there will always be a successor to him to rule over Israel. And Solomon was the first successor of David following him. Uh, and after that, the kingdom of Israel broke up into the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And the northern tribes eventually get conquered by the Persians, and then the Syrians come along and conquer all of Israel. And after the break, we'll get into how the Jewish religion and authority was practiced at the time of Jesus, and which prefigures Christianity. Excellent. We were chatting with Ken Litchfield, talking about the magisterium, diving into scripture. More to come right after this. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Master Apologist Ken Litchfield, talking about uh, the Magisterium. And right before the break, Ken, you're digging into the Old Testament roots uh, that establishes a kind of uh, Old Testament Magisterium. Yep. Uh, after David, there was a later king named Hezekiah, and he had a minister named Shebna. And Shebna is replaced by Eliakim. And the authority of the office for this minister is shown by the robe that he wears and the key that he carries. And for us modern Americans or modern people, you know, we're used to small keys that we carry around in our pocket. But back then, a key to operate a lock mechanism had to go through a thick wall to get to the lock mechanism inside. So when people were carrying around that key, it was a big honking key that they were carrying around. Right. And our modern times, sometimes a mayor will give uh, a symbolic key to the city to a local dignitary or, or a visiting dignitary. And that big key that they give away um, comes from the old keys that had to fit through walls to work a lock mechanism inside. Now our cities are generally wide open with roads going in and out and people come and go as they please. But back then they had walls around the cities with gates you know, where people could come and go and those gates would get locked at night. <clears throat> so, um, let's see. At the time of Jesus, the local synagogues had a ruler of the synagogue, and and that person could be a rabbi, or and they also had a servant of the synagogue, and then they also had a local Sanhedrin, which would work out the def difficulties locally. Um, because when the Assyrians conquered the Jews, they spread the Jews out all around the Mediterranean. So there were more Jews outside of Jerusalem than inside of Jerusalem. Hmm. 
And in, but in the city of Jerusalem, uh, at the temple, there were three main offices there. There was the high priest, the temple priests, and the Sanhedrin. And this is the great Sanhedrin where Jesus was tried. And the priests there would teach from the seed of Moses. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says uh, that, you know, to listen to the scribes and the Pharisees when they teach from the seed of Moses and do what they tell you, but don't do what they do because they don't listen to themselves. And this prefigures the chair of Peter in Rome later on, where Peter would teach from the chair of Peter, and um, we were bound to listen to what was taught from the chair of Peter. And each bishop has, the chair is called the cathedra, and the church that has the cathedra, the teaching seat in it, is called the th cathedral. So. Every bishop around the world will have a cathedral where his cathedra is. Yeah. Yeah, just in case the listeners ever wondered why we have uh, cathedrals and where they came from, it's actually named after the chair of the bishop. Exactly. Yeah. And in Revelation uh, 3.7, uh, it says that Jesus has the keys of the kingdom uh, in heaven because he's sitting on the throne of David there. But Jesus left Peter behind to teach after he ascended into heaven, and the apostles as well. So when the apostles heard Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 16, you know, tell Peter, you know, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, uh, they recognized that Peter would hold an office like Shebna and Eliakim and that they would also hold a similar office and because Jesus tells them that whatever they bind on earth is bound in heaven and whatever they loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So they recognized what their role would be in Jesus' kingdom because they lived in a kingdom culture and that was the form of government and regulation that they knew. It was not a democracy, it was a kingdom where there's a king and ministers that help the king. And they also recognized that the post that they had, the office that they had, would be passed on to successors, just like King David passed on his office to his son Solomon, and ministers were named for new kings and things like that. And one minister, if they died or were corrupt, could be replaced by another minister. In John chapter 14, Jesus tells the apostles that he will send the Holy Spirit to guide them. So we have assurance that Jesus is going to help the church make the right decisions when it's really important. Uh, let's see, 10 days after Jesus' ascension into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, Peter and the rest of the apostles are gathered in the upper room and they vote to, well, they're, they're working to replace uh, Judas because Judas had an office and it needed to be filled again. And Matthias is the one that they chose to fill Judas's office. And the King James Bible tells us 
that Judas' office is referred to as a bishopric. So if you have a King James-only Protestant that you're dealing with, you can show them right there in Acts chapter 1 that the successors of the apostles have a bishopric, and then ask them if they have bishops in their church. Most of the King James-only folks are fundamentalists, and their, their religion or their version of Christianity ends at their church door, basically. <laughs> it's very localized. And they don't have bishops above their local pastor that tells their local pastor what he has to teach or how he's supposed to teach it. And then in Acts chapter 2, the apostles receive the Holy Spirit, comes down to them like tongues of fire, and they go out and preach to the Jews there that have gathered for Pentecost, and they speak to them in their local languages, um, because Aramaic had kind of evolved into different, more local languages, because people didn't move around very much. And even here in the U.S., you know, the English we speak here in the Midwest is different, slightly different than the English they speak in the Northeast or in the South or in the West. Uh, but we Midwesterners, we have the right English, American English. The other guys all have accents. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's uh, why it's great living in Michigan. We don't have an accent. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> uh, let's see. And in Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter goes out and preaches to the Jews, and 3,000 are added to the church that day. Um, and the Jews ask Peter, well, what must we do to be saved? And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, and you'll receive the, for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. And then he also tells them that this promise is for them and their children. So... Peter doesn't tell the Jews, the first Christians, uh, to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior to become a Christian. No, he tells them to repent and be baptized. So that's how people became Christians from the very beginning. Yeah. Now, the disciples that became the apostles, they handed on what Jesus taught them to the new Christians. Some of what they taught was written down. But because parchment was very expensive and few people could read and write, the faith was passed on orally more than through writing. The oral tradition was supported by the tradition, the written tradition that came later. And when there were disputes, they held councils, both local and ecumenical, to work them out. So we have our offices in the church, they teach the faith to others, and then when there's a problem, they have a council and work out the correct teaching. It wasn't a bunch of churches with a copy of the Bible doing the best they could with the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, some people talk about how the early Christians, you know, devoted themselves to the sacred writings or the scriptures, whatever, and fellowship, but those first Christians didn't have a New Testament. It was still being written at that time, and some of it hadn't even been written when that part of Acts was written. Okay. And in Galatians chapter 2, when Paul is converted to Christianity and wants to uh, 
make sure that he's teaching soundly, he goes to Jerusalem to learn from uh, Peter, James, and John, the high, highest authorities in the Catholic Church at that time. He doesn't just get out his New Testament and start preaching to, to Christians from that. And this shows that the authority to preach comes from the church, not just having a copy of the Bible, which is very important uh, because our Catholic clergy can be traced back to the apostles, whereas Protestant clergy can be traced back to the guy that founded their denomination. And in Acts chapter 15, we have a record of the Council of Jerusalem. And there was a dispute amongst the early Christians. The Jewish Christians were always trying to push the works of the law on the Gentile Christians. So whenever you're reading Paul's writings, you have to think about this fact, that when Paul refers to works, it's the Jewish works of the law that the Jewish Christians are pushing on to the Gentile Christians. And that's why he's always preaching that we are saved by faith in Jesus not works. Those are the works of the law. Um, and the people at that time knew this. It's the modern Protestants that have a problem uh, with thinking that it's all works that don't save us. But it's no, it's just the Jewish works of the law. Yep, very important point. We're chatting with Master Apologist Ken Litchfield about the Magisterium. More to come right after this. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. We are with our good friend, Master Apologist Ken Litchfield, talking about the Magisterium, diving into Old Testament roots and New Testament roots for the Magisterium. And, yeah, lots of great insights, Ken. So, uh... I mean, we see the roots there uh, all the way through the Old Testament, of course, New Testament, uh, where the church meets and councils. Uh, where do we go from there? Yep. Well, first, we'll finish up with the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, the Council of Jerusalem gives a binding decree on all Christians. And the binding decree <clears throat> starts out with, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And basically, the decree tells the Christians that they don't have to keep the Jewish works of the law, uh, but they should avoid eating meat that still has the blood in it and drinking blood so they don't offend the Jews. But this decree from the church directly contradicts what is taught in Genesis chapter 17 about circumcision, and it's binding on the whole church and the Council sends out men that are authorized to read this decree to the other churches, and they're now required to follow what this decree says. And so this shows that the church has authority over Scripture and the authority to interpret Scripture. It's not just the Bible. Uh, at the Council of Jerusalem, they didn't open up their New Testament and read what it said at the what happened at the Council of Jerusalem. 
they were living it. And what they decided, which contradicted scripture, was handed on and written down. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, not the Bible. And John's gospel tells us in chapters 20 and 21 that not everything is written down in what we now call the Bible because no book could hold it all. In John chapter 20, right after Jesus' resurrection, he tells the apostles that any sins they forgive are forgiven and any sins they retain are retained. So this is the passing on of Jesus' authority from the Father to his apostles. The Jews were very mad at Jesus for forgiving sins because they said only God could forgive sins. And here Jesus is passing that authority on to his apostles. And right before Jesus ascends into heaven in chapter 28 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells the apostles that all authority that God gave him, he passes on to the apostles. And Jesus tells the apostles to go out and teach the whole world everything he taught and to baptize them in the Trinity. And Jesus promises to be with them until the end of the age. So we have to we understand that God promised to be with his church until the end of the age. Protestants all have this idea that at some point, the original Christian church went off the rails, became the Catholic church, and then the guy who founded their denomination got everything back on the right track again. Right. Yep, that's the, the uh, was it the apostasy that wasn't, right? <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yeah. And so the apostles, they went out and founded churches and handed on their authority to guys that we now call bishops. And we call this handing down of authority apostolic succession. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy to be a good minister and to teach soundly and not to, to neglect the gift that was given to him by laying out of hands. So that's how the... Uh, apostolic authority was handed on was through the laying on of hands. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, Paul reminds Timothy to remember the gift you received with a laying on of my hands. And he warns Timothy to be careful about whom he lays hands on to be sure that they know and follow the faith before laying hands on them. So Timothy's not supposed to just give these guys a copy of the Bible and lay hands on them and tell them to go out and preach. They have to know the faith. Hmm. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul lists the different positions in the church, like prophets, teachers, and readers. And in Titus chapter 1, this is a great one, because Paul reminds Titus that he left him in Crete to teach the people rightly and to appoint presbyters that we now call bishops in every town to properly hand on the faith. And then Paul also tells Titus that the men he appoints should teach and appoint other men follow, following the tradition of apostolic succession. So we have the faith that Paul had passed on to Titus, who passes it on to the guys he appoints, who are supposed to pass it on to other men. So we have four generations of apostolic succession here in one chapter. Hmm. 
And in 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11, Paul tells the Corinthians about the church practices. And he says, we have no other practices and neither do the churches of God. So we know that, you know, all the churches at that time had a common practice in the faith. And the interpretation of the Old Testament was passed on by oral tradition. And the interpretation of the New Testament is also passed on by the oral tradition. But the question is, how do we know what that oral interpretation was? And that's where the church fathers come in. And for us Catholics, the church fathers are great guys because they teach a Catholic interpretation of the New Testament before the Catholic Church assembled the New Testament. In 90 AD, the church in Corinth that Paul had to write two letters to, they have a problem again. And so they write a letter to the church in Rome. They didn't write to Jerusalem. They didn't write to Antioch. They wrote to the church in Rome. And the Bishop of Rome writes a letter back to them and sends a delegation to them to work out their difficulties. And that uh, the re reception of that letter is celebrated like every year for the next 300 years. And so therefore we know that the church in Corinth recognized the church, the authority of the church in Rome and listened to them. They didn't just go back to their New Testament and you know, try and work it out themselves. In 107 AD, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, he writes that the teachings of the church are passed on through the bishops, not a book. Uh, he writes, wherever the bishop is, there is the Catholic Church. And he also writes that the church in Rome presides over Christianity. And in 150 AD, Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, has a problem with uh, celebrating the date for Easter. And he goes to the Bishop of Rome to work that out. He doesn't go to the Bishop of Jerusalem or Antioch. He goes to Rome. And in 180 AD, uh, Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, he writes a five-volume book against heresies because there are already different versions of Christianity popping up, and he writes this book to refute their bad practices. And he says that if two Christian churches have a difficulty, all they have to do is check with the church in Rome because they have the correct teaching because they have the teachings of Peter and Paul there. So as early as 180 AD, uh, it's well established that the church in Rome has the highest and final authority. And the church continued to hold local councils, and uh, by the time Christianity is made legal in 311 AD, they start holding ecumenical councils. And the first one is the Council of Constantinople, and one of the things they work out is the correct date for celebrating Easter. And there's a lot more we can say about this early Christianity, <laughs> but I want to get to a little bit about today's Christianity. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. today we have the universal magisterium, which is the teaching of the entire church. And these can be infallible or, or non-infallible teachings, but they're long-standing teachings of the church. 
And then we have our ordinary magisterium, which is generally fallible teaching, but it's the current guidance that we get for the church. And then we have the extraordinary magisterium, which is the solemn teaching of the church uh, given by councils and the Pope. And these can give infallible teachings that are binding on the whole church. And the binding teachings are called dogmas. And these are the required teachings that Catholics have to agree to, to be a Catholic. If you sign up to be a Catholic, you have to believe in the dogmas. But we also have doctrines, which are longstanding teachings of the Catholic Church and are basically required at the time that you become a Catholic, uh, that you believe them and follow them. But they can evolve and be further defined later on. And then we have disciplines, which are the more minor teachings. Um, like we used to have to not eat land meat on Fridays, but now we can eat land meet on Fridays and offer some other form of penance. Um, because for a lot of people, eating, you know, seafood is a treat. And so therefore, it's not much of a penance to offer on Friday. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, very good. So you have these different levels of teaching and you trace uh, magisterium throughout history all in one program, which is very impressive. Uh, now, uh, before we end, I want to plug not only your book, How Old Is Your Church, but also you often uh, you offer uh, various essays that you've written as well. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I have a collection of about 200 essays now. Um, it's over 200. But anyway, I will send you a free copy of all these essays. Most of them are about two and a half pages long. And they help you to better understand and share the truth of the Catholic faith. Just send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com. And I'll send you the whole package for free. And I'll even throw in a free PDF copy of my book if you want. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, you can't beat the price. And great uh, scholarship and research on your end. So, Hey, I, I have to tell you, on behalf of my listeners, we appreciate your generosity. And, uh, yeah, people, avail yourself of that resource. Uh, just go to KenLitchfield61 at gmail.com and uh, ask them for it. Well, Ken, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Gary. Really love being here. All right. Take care, my friend. That's Ken Litchfield. And, uh, man, the hour's flowing. But coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. The dynamic duo of Catholic talk. And uh, it's time for me to shut down the Midwest Command Center, turn off the dojo lights. Thank you so much for tuning in. And God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow to do this thing we call hands-on politics. Bye-bye.